welcome back to the OWASP podcast. It's Matt Tassaro, and in this episode, we cross the streams Ghostbuster style and cover automation for audit and compliance. Yes, you heard me right. Compliance and automation, DevOps style, with Caleb Quern, one of the authors of Investments Unlimited, a book I like so much, I bought it twice. Let's get started. This is Matt Tassaro with the OWASP podcast, and I have the pleasure of being here today with Caleb Korn. We're going to talk about some of the stuff he's been involved in for a long time, but kind of came together in a wonderful bit of fiction called Investments Unlimited. As you can hear, I have the physical book and I liked it so much I got the audio book. So I have two copies of it. So Caleb, for people who don't know you, you want to give a quick kind of overview of your background, your Reader Digest version of Caleb, so to speak? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. I'm excited to be here with you. Everybody, my name is Caleb Quirin. I'm a director in a consulting firm these days, and my job and my role in life is to help large organizations push code quickly and often in small bits so that they can innovate and grow. I've been doing that for maybe seven years now, and I've been in InfoSec a lot longer. But my relationship here with Matt, I think, began I don't know, 2013 or 14 back in OWASP. AppSec California, where he was presenting on topics and I became a big fan of his and talking about things like the Unicorn Project, which I'm sure, and I should say the Phoenix Project, which will come up on the call today. Oh, definitely. Yeah, we, we have to mention that. It's almost obligatory. Um, so before we get into the guts of the book, can you give us a little background? How did this, I, how did this book come to be? A collection of authors came together to make this thing called Investments Unlimited. What was the thing that made it happen? What got you over the hump to make your $3.47 for your authorship? (laughs) (laughs) So I should say, uh, before telling some of the background about the book itself, is that this takes place in the same fictional universe, if you will, as the Phoenix Project and Unicorn Project is from the same publishing house. And so it was a big honor to be invited by them to help collaborate on this one. There was plenty of co-authors and the problem statement dates back a few years to something that many of our listeners may be familiar with, and that's large organizations, IT audit. They sometimes have a hard time knowing whether they should feel good about the code that goes into production and all of the, that did all of the right things happen to reduce the risk of that code that's about to be in prod. Were all the right controls in place? Did we exercise the capability? And so on and so on. Because traditionally speaking, at least internal audit it comes by once a year, maybe once every 18 months. They'll take some screenshots. They'll look at some config files. They'll have some conversations. But we all know, all of our listeners know, that DevOps moves so fast that the code that's here today is gone tomorrow. The infrastructure that's here today is gone tomorrow. And so it's really hard, given that legacy approach, to knowing really what's happening right now. And that's the question that IT audit would love to answer for leadership. And so there was a technical framework in a white paper, an industry group white paper, not a vendor white paper, but a thing that came out a few years ago and it was like a technical framework for this thing called automated governance. And to land the plane here, Matt, the book, Investments Unlimited, just like the Phoenix Project, just like the Unicorn Project is a fictionalization. It's a novella to make these ideas really a lot easier to grasp and maybe even act on when we get back to work on Monday. So that's the spirit is that it's a way to help organizations think about risk reduction as they build stuff fast, which is, I think, ultimately what we're probably all here for. And that's our job in the world, isn't it? 
Yeah, I'm not expecting a company to tell me to go slower when they're trying to get a product out the door, right? That just that's a non that's a non-existent problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah so, one of the things that caught me in the book that I thought was just very interesting is that if you look back historically or traditionally in, in AppSec and in InfoSec even, automation and compliance was kind of like oil and water, like those two don't mix, right? That was an unspoken rule, for lack of a better word. But one thing that was great about this book showed is that's a fallacy. That's not true. Can I explain how that, that you're able to sort of mix oil and water in a successful sort of way? Yeah. And I think another way to set the stage for the audience is, it, you know, the story I like to tell is that if you were to ask leaders and organizations a few years ago, how they were feeling about this DevSecOps stuff, let's imagine you catch the CE, not the CEO, let's say the CIO or the CTO, right? The CIO or the CTO in the hallway. And you said, you guys have a plan for reducing risk as you put stuff in prod. And they would absolutely say, yes. You ask the same question to the chief information security officer, same, that person would say, absolutely. We've got a plan. We know what we're doing here. An IT audit would yet say, yeah, yeah, we know what we're doing when it comes to DevSecOps and reducing risk. And some of those people would be telling the truth a few years ago, but not all of them. <laughs> Maybe they're stretching the truth a little bit. But today, I think it's true that all three of those groups, the CIO, CTO, the CISO, and internal audit, hand on heart can say, yep, we have a plan and it's in place and we're doing our best against it. But I don't think any in any large organization today, the plan of those three tribes would be the same plan. And so the vision of this book, Investments Unlimited, and the idea of automated governance is to give all of those groups the same plan so that they can remove, you know, we always talk about reducing silos and the kind of friction that happens between groups. It's like the ultimate vision for accelerating velocity and getting great features in the prod together and make the business win. Yeah, absolutely. That reminds me of my area that I'm playing in currently is API security. And that's a, another thing that has great similarities where you have multiple stakeholders that are involved in getting something out the door. Cause then APIs don't usually happen in, in isolation. They're backing a mobile app or they're backing a website or their B2B connection, whatever it is, but there's a whole bunch of teams, a networking team, there's an identity team. There's a, probably an API gateway team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, making this thing happen and yeah. coordinating those disparate groups that have disparate remits and disparate goals is yeah. tricky. And I think the same thing happens and was put, you know, pointed out in the book and then how you can address that, which was fantastic. Yeah. So here's the guts of the book. I'll give the audience kind of the cliff notes of this automated governance vision. I think there's four elements. And so the first of the four is perhaps my favorite. And if all our listeners out there could imagine a table and the columns in the table are the different things that we can do to reduce risk. And they could be, as we build stuff and building systems, they could be before or after deployment, your SAS, your DAST, your software composition analysis, secrets scanning, et cetera, all the way through WAF and you can do pen testing, all the end to end, like those are the columns. And then the rows in the table are pretty easy. You have a row for your high criticality apps, another for your medium criticality apps, and then a final one for low criticality apps. So this table shows what we're going to do to the high, medium, and low criticality apps. And you can talk about the depth and the breadth and the frequency of each of these cells in the table. But the point is you have a vision that you can communicate to these other stakeholder groups of what they can expect. 
And there's going to be negotiation. There's going to be people who say that's unrealistic. We can never, you know, like, if you apply this much scrutiny to us, you're going to break the business or slow us down too much. Fine. That's great. We can negotiate. That's, I think, the beauty of this first element. The second element of the four is that when things don't meet the criteria we just talked about, and we're pushing through a build and the pipeline, you can break the build. You can stop it so it won't be deployed. Right? That's the automation of the governance because we've just said what good looks like in step one, step two, we're going to prevent risky stuff or things that we agreed don't meet that criteria from getting into prod. Step three of the four elements is that along the way, when we push code through that pipeline, today in most large organizations, there's different scans that happen, there's different kind of treatment, and the data from each one of those things stays in its own little home or, or interface. Like we have all these vendors who hook into the pipeline and the data goes back into those UIs. But in, in automated governance, we want all of that data to go to a single place for the first time. So all of our stakeholders can see the same thing at the same time. That's three of four. And finally, is that that place, we'll call it a data lake where we sent all this stuff, is immutable. It is tamper-proof. And this is pretty important because it is, when, going back to the very beginning, when we talked about IT audit, one of the great muscles that those folks have is they're always going to ask, how can I trust that what I'm looking at is reality, right? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's wonderful. They're trained to ask that when they swing by and do their audits. When we have an immutable data lake that is tamper-proof, meaning every row, when it's inserted, we generate a hash right there of the data that we just inserted. And upon retrieval, we can look at the hash again and make sure they match. The beauty of that is that, of course, everybody knows that what's there is really what happened on that date and time that you're looking at. And we have confidence that this is the state of affairs in our organization. So those are the four elements, I think, of automated governance that you'll find in Investments Unlimited. Yeah. And one of the things that resonated me when I was going through the book was the fact that I've seen sort of a subset of those very four same things in the work I've done automating AppSec, right? Which was a narrower focus. I loved how broad your focus was, by the way, but a much narrower focus. And the single source of truth, such an amazing, important thing that, that a lot of people just don't get. Because I, I got tired of logging into the 57 different web consoles and also, by the way, 57 different ways that a vulnerability is displayed or categorized or the metadata around it. And all of that just gets old. I mean, it. the amount, uh, it, it, one of the ways I like to explain it is you can either, if you have 57 tools, which is maybe an exaggeration, but maybe not, is if I want to do something with those tools, I have to convert from tool version of itself to the next step, right? And I have to do that 57 times, which is really ugly and grunt work. It's not exciting work. And so things that will consolidate that and, you know, self-promotion, I've been part of Defect Dojo for a long time. One of the things we did with that was take all these disparate things and make one data model out of it. That then now you can flow those results out to whatever needs it in one same fashion. And you solve a problem once instead of 57. Yeah, I've been a big fan of Defect Dojo for years. Among the reasons I like talking to you, Matt, is because of your contributions there. But yeah, absolutely. Like... We've had that problem for a long time in AppSec. Things like Defect Dojo certainly support this vision. And that final layer of making that data immutable, I think that's cherry on the cake or the cherry on the sundae, as it were. But really, that to me is something that is worth looking at and worth investing in at large organizations. 
That's something that uh, quite honestly, Defect Dojo is missing, but I love that idea. I've made a lot of thoughts in the back of my head about how can we do this? Because being able to stamp something as like, this is no longer changing. Now there's a little bit of in, in the Defect Dojo world, there's a little bit of, as I'm triaging issues, which is one of the things you do in Defect Dojo, you do want them mutable, but once they're done, you want them to stay done. There's a certain point where they're fixed. And I love that idea of the immutability. That was thing that it's one of those ideas that when you hear it, it's painfully obvious, but if you'd asked me about it, I never would have thought of it. <laughs> Going all the way back to the white paper that I mentioned at the beginning, I think this original use case for why we care, like why we're thinking about this vision that solves the itch from an internal audit and that allows them to feel better about DevSecOps. And then we've got this, like we talked about this vision that leads on how to help it. Obviously the benefits of engaging stakeholders from those communities and their input is what led to this idea. I also wouldn't have thought of making the data lake immutable, but now that we've asked for their contributions and baked it into the vision and the technical framework, like, wow, what, a, what an idea. And the other thing I wanted to share, Matt, is that it's not just about the code and what happens to the code as it goes through a build that we put into the data lake. There's also signals and telemetry from the infrastructure doing the build, right? In events like SolarWinds and others where we learned that we can't always trust that the infrastructure itself performing the build is safe. <laughs> Like we want to capture elements along the way, just like we do with the code and like how many criticals, highs, mediums, and lows come out of the SAS and the DAST and the SA, all that stuff. Same things like, hey, what has anything like suspicious happened to the Docker container that is running our build server, right? All of those things, I would love in real time to capture telemetry about. So I know that when all of this great data was generated, I should have faith that it's the thing that we intended to be doing all that work. It's not somebody else's system that is, or influence muddling up our build. And that supply chain side of things is just huge because it, it was a an under-respected part because we, we were all worried about the artifact coming out, but not how we got to the artifact. Yeah. And that's, that's a weak point that a lot of people have not shored up 100% there. One, yeah. one of the things I noticed about the table and the thing I like about sort of thinking that way, I've done a similar thing where I bucketized apps into different criticality and then they got more or less treatment, a, AKA yeah. love or scanning or assessment, whatever, based on where they fell, yeah. was it makes the understanding of trade-offs, right? If there is a shortfall in an application in one of the many things that rows of your table, like SCA falls short, right? You don't quite make the bar and there's let's say there's a push to get an exception right which is nothing uh, out of the ordinary the nice thing is you can get a, a particularly if those things are visible i can say well look you got green on everything but this one and by the mm -hmm. way you're generally good on it you've historically done the right thing we can give you a pass or you're a bloody basket case <laughs> and I'm sorry, yeah. it's time for us to get religion and get real with you and have some hard conversations because you're not towing the line or whatever needs to happen. But I love mm -hmm. the fact that you have that visibility. I think what I also appreciate about that table is that it just allows for negotiation because again, like we're going to probably encounter teams or product groups that say, hey, this is way too much scrutiny. And you can say, great, no problem, guys. Why don't, as we get started, we're all learning together as an organization, maybe for the next six months, the depth, breadth, and frequency of this one thing is going to be pretty light. 
no big deal. But guess what? In six months, we're going to tighten the screws. It's going to be the same for everybody, but we have time to prepare together. And some version of that is usually acceptable. It's the surprises that they don't want, but having this on a page and not buried in a bunch of confluence stuff or policies and standards in a hundred different places, which I think is not uncommon, is powerful. Oh, 100%. Uh, you know, I may or may not in my past career have been in a meeting with a product team and said, oh, yeah, we have a we have a policy on that. And then quickly whipped up a wiki page and sent a link. <laughs> right? May or may not be reality. But it is amazing how, and this is, I don't know if this is computers doing it to humans or humans changing over time or just a general characteristic of being alive, but people really like summary data. I mean, the, the details are good to have and they're very useful if you if you need to go to that depth. But like for most decisions, that quick overview gives you enough to, to, to pull the trigger in the, in the right direction. That's right. And trends over time, we all love to see, you know, the colors go from maybe red or orange to yellow to green. That's the type of thing that's possible when all of this data is in the same place. And then we know we can trust in it. But like you said, the summary data, like leaders can say, oh, this team over there and the five teams around it doing pretty good. I don't need to pay attention to them. There's a little bit, you know, more concerning colors over in these other apps. It's, it's a big enabler for the business. Yeah, there was a place I worked at that had not so DevOpsy of a team that was doing quarterly releases, which, okay, fine. If that's your cadence, that's your cadence. Like that's life, sure. whatever. But so they had these longer windows of change. And what we did with them in the same kind of a conditional enforcement idea you're talking about was we would run scans weekly and until three weeks out of the release, they're just informational. I mean, now the findings levels might be what they, what they are, but you don't have to act on them. We just know that you got, who knows, like 10 highs and four crits six weeks out, but you can figure out when you want to get those down and we're not going to get real with you until three weeks out. And then it's time to make those. And I've given you weeks and weeks of warning. So there's hopefully no surprises, right? That was a, a much more palatable interaction because I think prior teams had done, like I ran a scan and I found badness, but you're six weeks out from even releasing. Well, you got a little bit of hang time to fix those things. Like we don't have to make it an urgent thing. I think the power and maybe what we haven't expressed very much on this call is empathy. And these folks have stuff they got to get in prod. And it's easy for maybe security people sometimes to say, you know, thou shalt, thou shalt. But they have competing priorities and laying it out and communicating it and then automating the visibility around these things and even automating the prevention of stuff getting into prod that don't meet our agreed upon criteria. What a capability. So, yeah, it's very exciting. And Investments Unlimited was a way to hopefully make it. Uh, easy to wrap our head around. And like we said, maybe even consider building towards at our, our organizations when we go back to work on Monday. Yeah, I, I, I'm not in a place where I could do that, but you you made me want to look for a place where I could when I read the book. <laughs> it was like, oh, I want to go, I want to convince my coworkers to do this stuff because this isn't in my remit right now. But dang it, if it was, I'd have a ball with it because I was just, it was just cool stuff. Like 100% behind people reading this book. It's not that big. It's an easy read. It's interesting. And there's just some great, great ideas buried in there. And one of the, one of the things I noticed too, that you were nice enough to do in the book was have a nice appendix full of a whole bunch of additional information. Do you want to talk through that a bit? I know that was worth flipping through. A lot of appendixes are kind of meh, meh, meh but this one was actually quite useful. If memory serves, I think there's a couple in there. One is probably the love letter to auditors. I think that got yep. turned into an appendix. That's a classic one. 
by some of our colleagues in, in OWASP and others who created the love letter that, to IT auditors, that's in there. You'll also find a table that I think captures what happened in the book of different, I'll call them rows in the table, you know, because mm-hmm. you know, these are the, type, the types of things that you could instrument in your build pipeline. And in the table, it'll say things like, was this in the book or not? Or should you consider this out of the gate? That type of stuff. So hopefully, again, making this more actionable when people think about their own journey. So hopefully it's a little bit more of a how-to guide. And I think there's others that are also, again, making it more easy to do this when you get back to work. Awesome. And one other thing that I forgot to mention when you talked about the overarching rows, an interesting thing that can be a challenging conversation at at some places is the break in the build, right? And we we talked a little bit about this, but I didn't know if we needed to double click on that or get any more depth, but I know that's always a dicey conversation. I've done some trainings before where we talk about running scans and do you break, do you not break? I mean, to me, it's sort of, you want to have an anaphylactic shock-like reaction to false positives, right? Like, do I have to get an EpiPen if I pass this on, right? That's a good stance to take with false positives because I've made the mistake of pushing false positives down the road to the devs and, and getting pushback that I deserved. Anything else you want to add to that? I know that was an, a good part of the book in terms of making things happen or whatnot. You know, it's an important thing to bring up because again, speaking from, well, speaking with empathy, we don't want to impose unnecessary or, or su- surprises or burdens on these teams. And if it's legitimate that at least for now, we can accept the risk of something temporarily making it into prod, perhaps that's okay. And the big picture Right. And we say, all right, so whether it's you guys on this one team right now, or maybe just if we're going back to our table of which capabilities we're going to exercise against the app portfolio. And we say, you know what? We're all not ready for what we'd really like to see happen later. You fail. You can't go to product. You've got one critical man. That would be beautiful. But maybe we're not ready for that yet. But in eight or 12 months, we will be everybody. So it's okay to negotiate like that. And we should have empathy for those other teams. Well, everybody starts somewhere. And as long as you're making improvements, it's really, it's progress. And at the end of the day, like businesses are here to make money. I mean, I hate to say it, this is a crazy talk, but like businesses are here to make money. And sometimes there are compromises you have to make where the, the absolute purest form of your product may not make it out the door because there's time constraints, right? And if you're going to go back and address them, that's kind of okay. A lot of times it's always about the story of the journey we're on together. If we can say, listen, I love what you said a second ago, Matt, we're here, we're all getting better together over time. We have a plan, we're working against it. Everybody's agreed upon it. Even if something goes wrong, as long as you can say what we just said, that's usually enough to make people feel better that everybody is doing the right thing, working together for the broader organization's goals. Awesome. Well, this has been really great. And I'm going to double down again on my request for the audience to go get the book, because please do. I'll put a link in the show notes. And then you can get another three cents when they buy a copy because I know how it is for authors. <laughs> That's right. Yep. I, uh, <laughs> um, it, uh, I'm rich in many ways. We'll put it that way. Monetary may or may not be one of those. But... <laughs> well, there are ancillary benefits. I mean, I've done a lot of open source work that that's done well for me professionally, but I haven't made a percent on, right? So, that, you know, that, that there's always karma that goes around. Yes. Yep. Karma. 100%. So... One of the features of the podcast that I started just out of the blue was to uh, use the Basecamp card company cards, 
which is a deck of cards that has these little conversation starter thingies on all of them. And I have pulled a random one from the deck. And I'm going to ask you a question that is related to nothing at all about what we've been talking about. So here is your crazy out of the blue question for you. Let's see. If, if you could identify with one fictional character from a book, show, or movie, who would that be? Yeah, uh, boy, tough one. I'm Sometimes I feel like uh, Captain Ahab in Moby Dick. <laughs> I think that's his <laughs> name, right? Captain Ahab? <laughs> that's his name, yep. Oh, yeah, 100%. Chasing the white whale, and maybe I'll go down trying. There's plenty of other characters that I, I wish I resembled more in like superheroes. <laughs> I'll, I'll go with Ahab on this one and okay. uh, check back in a few years to see if I've gone down with the ship and brought everybody with me. <laughs> right. So is, is uh, compliance automation your white whale? Is that what we're saying? <laughs> I hope not. I hope that's yeah. separate from that metaphor. <laughs> no, I, w- I would think not. That is whatever it is, it's worth pursuing. I don't think it is a white whale. Because, yeah. like, the, the, well, you'll you'll get it if you read the book, but the benefits you get of doing that are astounding, and it demonstrate it's demonstrated very well in the book. And you know, perhaps one last tip is, of course, start small. Find a friendly app team that is also interested in making things better. Experiment and grow over time. Right? You wouldn't introduce this in six months. This is a big change, but worthwhile. Yeah, no, I I 100% agree on the incremental thing. That is hugely, I think a lot of, a lot of great efforts fail because you try to eat the elephant in one bite, right? And it just, these are big efforts and it's change in an organization and none of that happens quickly. But if you position your start correctly in a manageable fashion, you can be very successful. Agreed. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, awesome. Well, no, thank you for being my guest. I love this. This is great. I hope the audience got a lot out of it. Um, They'll get more if they read the book. See, I'm I'm totally a shill for this book, but I loved it, so (laughs) I can't help myself. And any last words? And and thank you, by the way, for giving me some of your time today. Yeah, my pleasure. For all of our listeners out there, thank you for listening to me and Matt uh, talk about something that I think is pretty important because I always go back to the big mission. Like, why are we here? Why, Why are we doing what we're doing and spending our careers in in these tough tough technical areas. And for me, I feel better when I think that when we reduce the likelihood or impact of a breach or cyber event, and our organizations have more left over to invest in innovation and growth, that innovation and growth usually leads to prosperity, opportunity for people all around the world. So I'm very excited about this work and let's keep getting after it together, everybody. Awesome. Yeah, I'm all about sharing the love. That is beautiful. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Matt. I'd like to thank No Name Security for making it possible for me to record this episode. No Name is a complete and proactive API security platform that protects APIs in real time and detects vulnerabilities and misconfigurations before they can be exploited. No Name is an out-of-band solution that integrates with your existing infrastructure to provide deeper visibility and security. Please give them a look.